You've probably heard by now the Biden administration has made it an objective to decarbonize federal operations in the near future. One of the initiatives from the Energy Department to try and make that happen is a $6 million award to certain national laboratories to expand the use of geothermal heating and cooling at federal sites. To learn more about this plan and just how much this technology could help the White House reach its goal, I spoke to Dr. Alexis McKittrick. She's the DOE's Geothermal Technology Office's program manager. The background here is the federal government is really looking to lead by example in the renewable energy space, um, including deploying renewable energy technologies and decarbonizing our own infrastructure. Um, Out of over 7,000 U.S. facilities, uh, federal facilities, uh, about 450 of those campuses make up 75% of the federal government's energy use. And so from a geothermal heating and cooling perspective, this project is looking to convert, even if we can only convert a couple of those large campuses to geothermal, we'll have the opportunity to significantly decarbonize um, the federal infrastructure and increase resilience and energy security for key federal sites in the process. So would only certain federal sites be able to do this? And I I guess I can parlay that into the question of how does geothermal uh, energy work? It's been, you know, a word that's been tossed around, but uh, I I would like to kill the buzziness of it now and have you actually explain it to me. (laughs) Sure, we'll do. Let's tackle let's tackle that first, the technology piece, and then we'll we'll jump into what sites might be uh, might be candidates here. Um, so geothermal resources are essentially reservoirs of, of hot water and rock that exist at varying temperatures and varying depths in the Earth's surface. So it is the heat beneath our feet, if you will. Um, for geothermal heating and cooling, um, we're looking at a couple of uh, potential uses of that subsurface um, heat. Uh, geothermal heat pumps or ground source heat pumps are, I would say, kind of the most commonly known geothermal heating and cooling technology. Um, they're deployed about 2.5 million um, different residences in the U.S. actually use geothermal heat pumps now, and a number of district and community systems use them in network as well. And how they operate is they have essentially a, an underground component and an above ground component. In the underground component, you have um, piping um, that is run underground that is utilizing the relatively constant ambient um, temperature in the shallow subsurface. So think about 65 or 70 degrees Fahrenheit, right? That allows um, that um, uh, shallow subsurface temperature um, of about 70 degrees Fahrenheit allows you to provide cooling in the summer as well as heating in the winter. Um, by doing heat exchange with that shallow subsurface. And by shallow, I mean kind of tens of feet to potentially hundreds of feet um, underground for that piping. And then as you're working um, a fluid through that piping and doing that heat exchange, um, essentially on the surface, you have a geothermal heat pump that allows that that fluid to transfer the the heating or cooling um, to the um, building air. And then you have a kind of a traditional HVAC system and HVAC blower that then is moving um, that air, of course, through through the building to supply the heating or cooling. Um, So one, I think, thing I'd like to demystify is the idea that geothermal 
normal is only a heating solution, uh, because I would say, honestly, for the most commonly known uh, geothermal applications, actually, you know, year round heating and cooling in the form of these geothermal heat pumps. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, you think of geothermal first thought that comes to my mind is a hot spring or something like that. So everyone, right. <laughs> everyone thinks that. Uh, but yeah, the uh, aspect of it uh, cooling is something that, yeah, it, it, it's not uh, touched on a lot. And if I may, um, there, there are uh, what are called geothermal direct use systems that do use deeper geothermal resources that are hotter. So I mentioned that 70 degrees Fahrenheit-ish for, for geothermal heat pumps. You can go thousands of feet into the subsurface and tap hotter temperatures, so 100 to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, um, that then you take that warm fluid uh, via a well, bring it up to the surface and use heat exchange primarily for heating. Um, and that can be larger district or community systems like the one that we see um, in Boise, for example, that I think you, is supplies hot water to 90 different buildings um, in Boise, Idaho. And then the cooled water, after you're finished with it, um, can be completely returned um, to the uh, to the earth uh, in, a, in a closed system. So um, it's a really great application, but that is the kind that is more geothermal heating focused. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that geothermal can also be used for electricity generation as well. So, um, you know, there are uh, geothermal power plants, you know, within the U.S. right now that are producing clean, renewable electricity um, to our grid. Now, we're primarily focused on heating and cooling today, but want to make sure that 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 powerful application of geothermal is out there as well. All right. You made the sale. So what is the uh, geographic <laughs> limitations of geothermal that you were about to get into? <laughs> so what's what's great about geothermal heating and cooling is it really is a 50 state solution, um, particularly when you're talking about geothermal heat pumps. Um, they, they operate actually in all 50 states in the U.S. Um, now. Um, and um, we are increasingly seeing this emerging trend of these networked systems that are kind of called district scale or community scale geothermal heating and cooling systems that um, have emerged primarily on college campuses in the U.S., but are starting to emerge more um, in the private sector and communities as well. And these systems essentially use kind of common networked underground loops, um, either one loop leveraging that, that constant temperature we were talking about for individual heat pumps or two loops, one that um, is prim primarily for warm and one primarily for cold um, that can essentially uh, provide heating and cooling to an entire campus um, when you combine this with, again, some uh, fields essentially of, of piping infrastructure that uh, can run underground sort of in, in mass and provide that larger scale heating and cooling effect that's similar to the heat pump one that I was mentioning earlier, just scaled up um, to a district or, or campus scale. Um, so that's one thing that we really think is powerful about this technology is that it really can be applied um, anywhere um, in the United States um, as a renewable energy solution and in particular for building heating and cooling. So is it just the infrastructure costs is the reason why we don't see it in more places or is that was the technology just not there yet to make it feasible? Sure. So um, capital costs associated with these systems um, have historically been, been one of the barriers. Uh, I think we're seeing a couple of really interesting and unique solutions um, emerge to, th to that. Um, in particular, 
um, some uh, industry um, partners that are looking at potentially partnering with utilities, for example, um, as this space grows and, and emerges. And as I mentioned, this is a, a trend that um, is, is catching on in the U.S. So I really think, Eric, that over the next kind of five to 10 years, we're going to see some different business models that um, recognize the utility of these systems and the broad applicability of them and help reduce that overall kind of capital cost associated with um, with these systems. Because in addition to being 50 states, right, they, they reduce emissions compared to fossil fuel. They're reducing the load on the, the electric grid um, and in particular be able to reduce peak load times. And they can be combined with other renewable energy technologies like solar, for example. So geothermal heat pumps do draw a small amount of electricity but if, say, you have solar panels that can supply that electricity, you can essentially create a complete renewable energy system, which is a, a powerful message. And something that we want to, like I said, lead by example within the federal government, which kind of brings us back to, uh, to this award in particular, which is focused on um, applying these systems to federal infrastructure. Yeah, it's a nice segue into the research aspect of things. Uh, what can you tell me about the work that uh, the Energy Department's own national labs are doing? And maybe, if, you know, if there's anything else that you want to add in you know, from the industry side that you're seeing as well. Sure. So I'll, I'll first say that the driver for this work um, and what we're calling the Federal Geothermal Partnership Initiative or FedGeo Partnership um, is supporting um, Executive Order 14057, which is you know, the executive order um, asking the federal government to, to decarbonize its infrastructure. Um, we're looking to achieve um, carbon pollution-free electricity sector by 2035 and net zero emissions economy-wide no later than 2050. In order to do that, the federal government needs to um, lead by example in this space. And again, looking to deploy, use this Fed partnerships initiative to specifically deploy geothermal heating and cooling technologies to federal sites. Um, this is a partnership that the Geothermal Technologies Office, which is the group that I work in, um, partners with the Federal Energy Management Program, or FEMP. Um, and they're the part of Department of Energy that's responsible for tracking renewable energy installations at federal facilities. Um, through our work with FEMP um, and their, their deployment-focused work, we identified a need for technical assistance at federal sites to consider geothermal heating and cooling, to do the exploration, the design, the site testing, the characterization on site um, that will help these federal sites determine if they're a candidate for geothermal heating and cooling. And so we've recently made an award, um, as you said, to our national laboratories, and in particular, um, led by Oak Ridge um, National Laboratory. Um, they're going to uh, partner with a number of other um, labs that have different um, expertise related to um, uh, building codes, to design of these systems, um, to um, understanding um, loads on the grids and the, the impact that these systems can have within the, the federal space. Um, and they're going to work to do that site characterization and design work um, at the different, uh, the different federal sites that we'll, we'll look to move forward with. Um, in addition to labs, though, I want to stress that what's really great about this award and this project is that Oak Ridge is also working with two universities that have experience in this space, and they brought in the International Ground Source Heat Pump Association, or IGSPA, which is essentially the nonprofit um, that 
is uh, supporting uh, private sector um, in this in this space. And so we're going to have a lot of private sector expertise that we can leverage as part of these uh, these systems and these designs, in addition to the the combined power of our national laboratory. So it's it's a pretty powerful award. All right, and uh, last question, yes or no, uh, that EO is framed in the uh, energy department right now and it's uh, planted on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I had been into the office more often, True. I probably would be able to verify that. <laughs> but I imagine I imagine that it is for, for sure. Uh, we, we all are, as I said, really excited for the federal government to lead by example and Department of Energy has a really big role in that. That's Dr. Alexis McKittrick, Program Manager of the Energy Department's Geothermal Technology Office. You can hear this interview online. Go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. 
Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply.